Welcome to episode 84 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Jonathan Pryke and Roland Raja from the Lowy Institute. The Lowy Institute is an independent, non-partisan, international policy think tank located in Sydney, Australia. Jonathan is the director of the Lowy Institute's Pacific Islands Programme a program that investigates the contemporary challenges facing the Pacific Islands region in areas including sustainable economic development, governance and leadership, and poverty alleviation. Jonathan's research is interested in all aspects of the Pacific Islands, including economic development in the Pacific, Australia's relationship with the Pacific, the role of aid and the private sector in Pacific Islands development and labour mobility. Roland is the lead economist and director of the Lowy Institute's International Economics Program, a program that aims to explain developments in the international economy and influence policy by undertaking independent analytical research. Before joining the Lowy Institute, Roland was a senior economist and country manager at the Asian Development Bank, where he worked on macro fiscal policy, economic growth and development issues in the Pacific region. Jonathan, Roland and I discussed the Pacific Aid Map, a major initiative by the Lowy Institute that charts aid flows across the Pacific region. We also talk about China and Australia's evolving aid engagement with the Pacific, particularly in relation to supporting the Pacific's economic stability and recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as Australia's aid program in Papua New Guinea. We've included relevant links in the show notes, along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog in the Pacific region. The Development Policy Centre is running its annual fundraising appeal. The centre provides critical support to this podcast and of course runs the Dev Policy blog and undertakes critical research around aid and development. If you appreciate this podcast and the Dev Policy blog, please make a tax-deductible donation at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Once again, we hoped to bring you coverage of the new aid strategy this week. However, the interview has again been delayed and we hope to bring it to you soon. Enjoy the episode. Jano and Roland, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. In August 2018, the Lowy Institute launched the Pacific Aid Map, an interactive analytical tool designed to improve aid effectiveness in the Pacific by charting aid flows. Jonathan, as one of the principal researchers for the project, can you tell me about the map and the insights that it provides? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, before we talk about the map itself, we need to talk a bit about the Pacific. And, you know, whilst often when you think about the Pacific and your, your audience will know most of this already, of course, when you think about the Pacific, you think about idyllic beaches and beautiful cultures, but, you know, that belies a, um, a, a region that is facing unique and acute development challenges. You know, with a cumulative population of under 13 million people, most of whom reside in Australia's former colony, Papua New Guinea, these 14 sovereign nations span over 15% of the world's surface and the dual tyrannies of small size and remoteness make conventional economic growth in you know, most of these countries very difficult, if not impossible. Compounded on top of that by some of the highest population growth rates in the world and the very real and imminent threat of climate change, uh, this makes the Pacific region one of the most you know, vulnerable regions in, in the world and, and is the most aid-dependent region in the world. So aid's an, a really important part of these economies of the development story of the Pacific. It's not, you know, the deciding factor, but it's a very important factor of development in the Pacific. Uh, and, you know, the, the aid industry is also uh, messy and at times opaque one. 
you know, pu public information at the project level for all donors is often sparse, lacks detail, and is you know, difficult to access. And a lack of transparency can hamper the effectiveness of aid in a number of ways. It can make coordination of aid efforts among donors pretty difficult. Uh, you need to have a comprehensive view of the aid landscape in the country you're working in to be able to identify where you can make the most difference. And you know, that's often hard to do. Uh, and donors often aren't the best communicators with one another. A lack of transparency can also increase, make it more challenging for countries in the Pacific to align aid with their own investment priorities. You know, take Kiribati's, Kiribati, for example. Kiribati's entire uh, budget team is under, is just a handful of people, you know, under 10. Uh, and they have to deal with 47 separate donors on top of managing the country's finances. You know, that's a pretty tall order. Uh, a lack of transparency can also reduce the efforts of donors to learn from one another and from the past. Uh, and a lack of transparency can also reduce, just reduces accountability of aid, both on the sending and receiving end. Um, it's hard to hold donors to account when you don't actually know what they're doing. So considering all these benefits of aid transparency, um, we, and the importance of that aid has in the Pacific region, we went on, we undertook this exercise to pull together the most comprehensive database of aid uh, at, down to the project level ever assembled. And we looked at both traditional OECD donor members and new non-traditional donors like China, Taiwan, UAE, Russia, uh, Israel, others. That's what, and so the aid map is the combination of this work. We have put together a database that collects inf information at the transaction level of 13,000 projects from 62 donors from 2011 through to today. We've collected over 33 million unique uh, points of data here. This is a real uh, computer killer spreadsheet. It's up in the hundreds of megabytes. Um, but then we've worked to take all this raw data and put it into a digital format that's digestible, accessible, and attract attractive and freely available. And that's what we've ended up with with the aid map. Now, I encourage everyone to just go onto Google and search Pacific aid map and go have a, have a squiz for yourself. Uh, but since its launch, we've been really... Um, encouraged by uh, its take up, it's been viewed hundreds of thousands of times. We've had feedback from aid practitioners, donors, recipients, uh, contractors, consultants, academics, you know, across the board that it's really, it's serving its primary purpose of helping make aid in the Pacific that little bit better. Uh, for the Institute's purposes, it's also helped uh, talk, talk about the geopolitical narrative in the Pacific, helped talk about China in a more, uh, I guess, sophisticated way about what China's aid activities are and aren't. And, uh, you know, that's talking about these geopolitics and major tectonic movements is you know, a big part of what Low Institute does. And so the aid map really helps us talk much more sophisticatedly, I think, about, um, about all of these dynamics in the Pacific. And we can get into that in, more, in future questions, if you like. Jono, was the main priority in creating the map just to increase transparency in the aid sector? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it made a big splash when it came out and the, the media was all focused again on this geopolitics uh, uh, point and talking about about China and Australia and um, and the new tensions we see arising in the region as a result of uh, China's growing influence in the Pacific. But that was that's really a, I mean, and it, that's helpful. But it's a secondary objective of the of the map. That the primary objective was improving aid effectiveness. And as I said, like the, there's a number of ways that aid transparency helps out, and that's this is all embedded in the literature of aid effectiveness and also in a number of international agreements like the Paris Accord in 2005, ACRA agreement, all uh, talk about the importance of aid transparency. And so we just really took took a leap forward with transparency in the in the aid map. And, um, you know, this was an initiative supported by the Australian government. They have endorsed the, the results of it and, and are supporting its continuation. So there's clearly buy-in to, to what the aid map is trying to achieve. And we'll continue updating it um, 
every year. So it's not just a static uh, map. It will be, uh, and we'll hopefully get it more and more up to date to be you know as close to current as possible. There is a lag in reporting from all donors, so you know it's not it's not showing you exactly what's happening on the ground today, but it is uh, illustrative and helpful nonetheless. And it's a project we're we're really frankly quite proud of. Is there anything material that you know is missing in terms of available data? Well, look, a lot of the uh, from the OECD donors, uh, they they all have through their membership of the OECD and other transparency glo- global transparency initiatives like the International Aid and Transparency Initiative. They all have pretty uh, comprehensive reporting mechanisms that they have to adhere to every year. Some are better than others. So, like the Asian Development Bank, the United Nations, uh, the World Bank, these large multilateral institutions, they have fantastic reporting because I guess of their scale, a reflection of their scale. Um, you know, others are a bit more laggard, but are catching up. But they all, anyway, they all have their own systems that are, are pretty decent in capturing most of the data. Now, when, you, when it comes to non-traditional donors like China, Taiwan, UAE, it's a much more of a black box. And we have to build up this database from, from the bottom up. You know, we are scouring budget documents in the Pacific. We're looking at press releases. We're approaching these governments where we're really triangulating all these sources of data to just try and identify, to put together a list of these projects. And some of these are big donors, you know, China's the third largest donor in the Pacific now by our measure. So, um, you know, it's not going, it's not a perfect science uh, because they don't do their own comprehensive reporting, but we're very confident that it's the best data set out there. And I would not encourage anyone to try and replicate what we've done because you'd be, you'd be spending, it, it, it took a lot of time. I don't want you to, your listeners to underestimate just how much time this took. So yeah, there is missing data on the aid front, and you know, aid's not the only the, the only way that foreign partners support the Pacific. You know, there's other official flows, so non-concessional finance. There's uh, defence cooperation support. There's support in policing that doesn't fit the criteria of aid, but is still support from governments going to the Pacific. Uh, we've captured some of that, but we can do a better job capturing it. And then there's other other stuff like um, you know NGO support to the Pacific. That's um, not as not nearly as large as formal aid, but it's still an important um, contribution nonetheless. There's private philanthropic support. So we could keep building, fleshing this thing out, building it out into other areas. Um, and so, yeah, the job's never going to be done, but, uh, you know, we're excited to keep working on the map into the years ahead. Roland, you're familiar with Pacific economies as you currently are the lead economist and director of the Lowy Institute's International Economics Program. And you've also been the country manager for several Pacific Island countries at the Asian Development Bank. Do you think the Pacific is trapped in poverty and will the region always be dependent on aid? Thanks, Rachel. I mean, I think um, Jonathan actually covered off some of the really important structural issues that are at play here. I mean, obviously, if you look at a regional at a regional level in terms of average per capita incomes, of course, this is this is low, and the region is the most aid dependent uh, anywhere in the world. Then, of course, within the region, there's a lot of variation. Some countries have higher incomes uh, than others, and countries like PNG and Fiji are, are vastly less reliant on aid compared to say the micro states where they're truly heavily dependent on receiving outside aid. When we talk about these issues, I think around whether or not countries in the Pacific are trapped in in poverty uh, and aid dependence, I think the the better way to think about it to me is that the reality is simply that they just face really significant structural impediments to growth and development, which are, of course, the key to escaping poverty and aid dependence. Uh, As Jono did mention, a lot of this just is a reflection of the region's difficult economic geography. It's it's small size by any, by any measure for most countries. Um, it's remoteness from major economic centers. It's internal dispersion. 
um, country uh, islands within countries uh, being very far apart, but also being having many remote communities. It's the exposure to shocks, um, income shocks that uh, derive from those factors that I just listed in terms of being heavily reliant on a few key economic drivers, aid being one of them, but also, of course, migration, remittance, tourism, uh, commodities, the exposure to natural disasters, um, the exposure to the negative impacts of climate change. You add all this up and, and the economic impact is to create these very high cost uh, structures. It's basically just extremely expensive to do anything uh, in the Pacific. So for the private sector, um, that makes it really difficult to follow the what might what many people consider the traditional path to uh, growth and development via industrialization, usually export led. The costs are just too high to make that competitive in the Pacific. Um, and then on the public sector side, it's really expensive and difficult to deliver the essential public services, um, infrastructure connectivity, health and education services. Um, these are all important development outcomes in their own right, but they're also critical inputs to economic growth and development. And so adding that all up, you end up with very limited, in general, very limited intrinsic prospects for the kind of more rapid growth and development, certainly that we've seen in Asia, but also, say, at a slightly more moderate pace in the emerging world more generally. Um, and the reality also is that the financing needs are just very, very high if uh, countries in the Pacific are going to meet things like the Sustainable Development Goals. So that naturally creates a very significant need for aid. So I think the upshot is that, although it's a much more nuanced picture, the, the overall picture still looks like one where most countries in the Pacific are in many ways, they look like they're trapped in a degree of poverty and, and aid dependence. If that's the case and economic growth is so difficult in the Pacific, why should donors ever issue loans? Shouldn't it always be grants? And shouldn't we focus on avoiding debt? Well, I think the question of loans obviously is, is very specific because, I mean, then you have to look at what, what the loans are being used for, of course. Some projects, particularly um, infrastructure projects, do and are able to generate an economic and financial return. And so loans are quite justifiably used in those circumstances. In fact, not using loans, you could argue if you were using grants instead to finance those sorts of projects, then you're crowding out the availability of of development finance and grants for, for other purposes that where it's not financially sustainable to do that. Now, having said that, of course, because of those reasons of difficult economic geography um, and the exposure to shocks in particular, of course, we're all seeing this massive one right now of, of, of COVID-19, but more generally the natural disasters as well. Um, that really does lower the, the debt carrying capacity of most of the Pacific countries. Um, it doesn't mean that debt per se is, is always and everywhere unhelpful. Ultimately, it depends on how much is being lent, but it also depends on the terms of that lending. If it's extremely concessional, then it becomes very similar at the end of the day um, to a grant uh, for most purposes. So I don't think we should always say debt is, is bad, but obviously debt sustainability is a key issue. And Rach, just on, Rachel, just on this point of you know, aid dependence and um, and the the Pacific being trapped in poverty. I mean, these are like this is a very uncomfortable language to be talking about. But the region in um, I think we do need to you know a, a lot of people who come into the Pacific don't fully recognise the, the, these the unique context of the Pacific and will fall back on traditional aid theory that you know you want to evolve out of aid and we you know we want to invest in sustainable projects and um, you know importing lessons learned from other parts of the world. 
Whereas the Pacific is just so unique and um, we have to be thinking so long-term about just the structural role that aid will play in these economies almost indefinitely, that we do need to start changing just not just our thinking, but also the language in which we're talking about the Pacific. Because, you know, the Pacific don't like being aid dependent. They don't like the idea, you know, I wouldn't like that language being hoisted upon me. So we are going to have to think about how we talk about the way we engage in the Pacific in different ways to to better appreciate just how long-term these investments are going to be um, be needed for. There's also a lot of criticism around the language used to describe China in the Pacific, including phrases like debt trap diplomacy. But Roland, if you do reject that debt trap diplomacy is happening, then are there any valid criticisms of China in the Pacific? Jonathan and I and our other colleague, Alex Dyant at the Institute, we did put out a report um, last year uh, looking at China's role in the Pacific in terms of its lending and, and, and debt practices. And you know, there is this narrative around debt trap diplomacy coming from, from certain circles and disputed by others. And we try to look at that systematically using evidence. Um, the, the aid map that John o has led um, was just incredibly critical to being able to do that in an evidence-based and objective uh, manner. Um, so that was absolutely key. Um, and, you know, what we did, what we found with that analysis and report was that, you know, it is actually quite a more nuanced picture. Um, it's, you know, it's quite difficult actually to rule out something like debt trap diplomacy because it comes down to a question of motive. But basically what we found was that the evidence to date didn't support the idea that that is what China has been practicing, at least not yet. Yet at the same time, we, we did try and carry out a sort of more forward-looking view and we did identify that there were some very clear risks associated with China's debt practices in the region. That's got to do with the scale of its general lending intentions, but also the fact that it just doesn't have very strong institutional mechanisms in place to prevent unsustainable lending. So the multilats, uh, the multilateral development banks, for example, OEC donors, they have strong and very clear rules about what what they do. China, on the other hand, uh, released a its own Belt and Road Initiative debt sustainability framework uh, last year, which very specifically says that it is a non-mandatory tool um, and provides no guidance to um, the Chinese lending institutions as to how they should adjust um, their lending policies, depending on what they found with uh, those those assessments. So I think, you know, the, the picture on debt trap diplomacy is, is quite nuanced, whether or not it's, you want to call it debt traps or not, there's clearly are some very significant risks to debt sustainability associated with China's lending. Um, but then, as you, as you ask, beyond that, there are a whole bunch of other issues which um, just don't get nearly as much attention, particularly in the Pacific, and that's partly why we, we went down this path of, of looking at, at this, this, this uh, analysis, this report, which is that there are, the, the other questions are equally, if not more important, right? It doesn't necessarily have to create debt sustainability problems for there to be potential uh, negative effects. I mean, we have to also be realistic in it and acknowledge that some Chinese development projects are, are quite helpful and, and China is also learning. And at the end of the day, it is up to the Pacific to determine uh, what, what and how uh, they want to do with the available financing uh, from the rest of the world. Um, but I mean, those other issues are, as you're getting at, there are issues, of course, around um, corruption, and the negative governance effect that can come with uh, Chinese aid. Um, there's already, as you know, a, a big literature around the negative, the potential for negative governance effects associated with large inflows of aid, um, even if it's 
uh, indirect in terms of undermining the incentives for those recipient governments to undertake uh, necessary reforms. Uh, but it's much worse if the, the, the donor in question specifically has a policy of absolute non-interference and not really imposing any conditionalities um, onto uh, its lending and, and, and financing availability. Of course, the recipient governments don't want that conditionality most of the time anyway, right? So it's a difficult one. But clearly there are some issues there and there's also a lot of issues around and question marks raised around the quality of the projects that, that China is, is building in the region. I'm a little bit more skeptical or sympathetic even um, on that issue. I think it is just difficult to do development in the Pacific and that a lot of projects necessarily generate an economic return um, in the region. But there are obviously concerns about that as well, particularly because it comes in loans. And so um, when, when, you're, when there are loans and you're wasting, if you are wasting money, then that's obviously uh, costly to, to those recipients. Uh, I guess that there, there has been, there is a real polarization of opinions on, on China uh, and there's little, very little room for nuanced and uh, I guess uh, deep analysis uh, and build, you know, data-driven analysis to try and chart a middle course here. And so when we, when we put out this paper last year, we, we kind of copped it on, on both sides as either just, you know, appeasing to, to China's interests in the Pacific and saying that, and absolving them of any wrongdoing. Um, or, or have been overly critical of, of China. But um, I think we've, we've just tried to paint a more balanced picture just and focus really on this very specific question about is China engaged in debt trap diplomacy and also just shine a greater light on debt dynamics in the Pacific more generally. Yeah, I think it has made an important contribution to, I guess, better understanding the role that China's playing, but it doesn't absolve China of all wrongdoing either. There are significant, we, there are issues around China's engagement in the region we should be focusing more on, um, less about debt, more about just the quality of the And as Roland said, they are learning, they are getting better. And some of the projects are, are better than others, um, but also about just the way in which China's and Chinese, and critically Chinese state and enterprises are engaging in the Pacific. Um, going around uh, institutions and going and engaging directly with political elites and you know, engaging in and you know, undercutting competition and creating all sorts of interesting and um, in many cases, perverse dynamics in the business community and with the political elites of the of these countries and engaging in corruption. I mean, all these issues are stuff we should be talking about more, but it's it's harder to talk about because you know all this stuff happens in the shadows. It's hard to do analysis on, and it's stuff we want to do more work on in in the future at the institute. Let's talk specifically about Papua New Guinea now as the largest recipient of our aid. Jono, you've been reviewing Australian aid to PNG for a long time, and you gave a pretty critical presentation on the topic at the Australasian Aid Conference, hosted by the Development Policy Centre and the Asia Foundation earlier this year. What are your main complaints about Australia's aid program in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, look, this this is like a podcast unto itself, right, this topic, um, and uh, so I'll, I'll try and keep it keep it brief. Um, and you know, I, complaint, I don't like the word complaint, it sounds like I'm, I'm having a whinge, but um, you know, the, the reality is that it's the bilateral aid program to PNG is Australia's largest. It's $600 million. It is also, we, Australia is also the largest donor to Papua New Guinea. It's a really unique environment in, where, in which Australia accounts for 60% of all aid going to PNG, which is a whole different subject. Like why on earth is, P, is that the case when PNG has such acute and profound development challenges? But so, yeah, I think there is good reason to have uh, for there to be regular and, and comprehensive uh, internal and external critique of Australia's largest bilateral aid program. And the reality is that that really hasn't been happening. 
lately. A lot of people, uh, it's a favorite pastime for people who work in PNG to complain about the Australian aid program, but there's very little comprehensive or I think well, uh, there, there's not a public debate on these issues um, for you know a, a myriad of, of reasons. But um, I think it is warranted to, to take a closer look now. The, the Australian aid program to PNG, m most of the major investments have been redesigned and rolled over as we speak. Uh, there's been a big turnover in um, in the High Commission in PNG as well. So new sets of hands to, to implement new projects. Uh, there hasn't been a, a formally commissioned review of the aid program for, for some years. The last one was done in 2014. So I think that's well overdue as well. Um, so yeah, for a number of reasons, it's important to, I think, take a look at a closer look at the Australian aid program to PNG. You know, I guess I, I, I do want to emphasize how hard all this stuff is. Like PNG, is, anyone who's worked in PNG knows that it's one of the toughest places in the world to do development. This is one of the most culturally diverse countries in the world. It's a, it's a very young country, a very fast growing country. One, it's a very re natural resource dependent country, which brings with it the, you know, the resource curse, Dutch disease, all these other challenges that are all compounding on one another. So it's a very difficult place to do development. And it's particularly difficult for Australia, where Australia has such broad set of national of interests in PNG, uh, from strategic to national interests to development interests to economic interests. Uh, it is and it's weird, we're both the largest donor, but we have far less agency than we think. But yes, it's also hard to get good people to go to PNG uh, and let alone stay long enough to be effective. There are a huge amount of legacy issues, baggage and competing priorities that um, Australians in PNG have to grapple with on a daily basis. There's also no silver bullets to development. So I'm basically, I'm, you know, I'm always to say this is really hard and I'm not trying to be, it's not a personal attack on anyone, but I do think we do need to take a closer look at the PNG A program. And this is part of a forthcoming policy brief at the Lowy Institute. I'm not, I don't look at 20% should be put in health or 15% put in governance. I don't look at individual projects. These are all decisions for the Australian government to be to make in concert with the PNG government, I instead look at the way in which aid is delivered by Australia in PNG. Uh, and, and I guess the, the and I, I break down my recommendations into into four, four areas. Um, I first look at the, the objectives of Australian aid in Papua New Guinea, I look at the, the, the way projects are designed and the structure of projects um, that, that form up this 600 million of Australian aid to PNG. I look at the partners that that Australian aid uses to implement uh, aid projects in PNG and the roles that these partners should be playing and what expectations should be uh, put upon them. Uh, and then I look at the way aid is managed within uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and, and Trade. And I have a number of recommendations in each of these uh, these areas. Uh, and yeah, the, I mean, my presentation at the aid conference is on on the record. You can go have a look at it in in more more details. But first, when we talk about prior about objectives, um, I think you know a big problem with the Australian aid program in PNG is that the objectives are so large, the expectations are so great. Um, if you look at the website, there are something like thirty four different priorities priority areas for the Australian aid program. And on the one hand, you could expect that given it's six hundred million dollars. But on the other hand, when you look at just the enormity of the challenges that Australia is trying to address, any one of these 34 priority areas could warrant a $600 million investment without even you know, solving the problem. So uh, you know, how, how you prioritise and manage expectations in the uh, PNG environment is, a real, is an, a real important starting point. 
Uh, and I don't think, and you know, this challenge-based approach or issues-based approach is not one that the that DFAT seems comfortable with. It's it's instead you focus on every issue and you try and um, do do a little bit of everything. Uh, another part of the objectives of aid is there should be a uh, I think a um, a founding principle of focusing on what works because there's so much in PNG that doesn't work that you we really need to you can't. I know everyone wants to come in with new ideas and new projects and new ways to do things, but so so little of it sticks. And I think you, the the, found, the first principle needs to be: don't uh, chuck the baby out with the bathwater. If something's working, keep it. Build and you know focus on what's not working and build from there. And finally, uh, clarity of intent. We do a very bad job articulating what it is we're actually trying to do in PNG um, on a day-to-day, -day, let alone a year-to-year -year or um, medium-to-long-term basis. The only real example we have of a long-term clarity of intent in PNG is the, the, this electrification partnership between Australia, Japan, New Zealand and the United States, where we've committed to electrifying 70% of PNG by 2030. That was announced two years ago, and you know I haven't heard anything about that project since. Um, so you know that says something about the clarity of intent um, of Australia's engagement in PNG. Um, I'll quickly run through the rest. Um, you know, talking about aid projects, I think there are issues around the size of aid activities. Um, you know, these projects have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, being implemented by private sector development contractors. I think 60% of aid to PNG is now uh, implemented through the private sector. Uh, 10 projects have accounted for 63% of all Australian aid to PNG. These projects are just so big that they're just too big to fail. And they, but they become so big, so complex that it's really, um, and this is another issue around the complexity of these projects. They're so big, so large, they encompass so much. It's very hard to communicate what they're actually trying to achieve. And it's hard to get buy-in from your counterparts in the PNG government. So if, if you know, if, if uh, Australian stakeholders, if the Australian government don't know what these projects are doing, what, uh, then the, you know, our counterparts in Papua New Guinea really have, have no hope either. So, yeah, complexity of these activities need to be simplified or need to be um, need to be reduced in their in their size and ambitions. Um, I think design of activities is also an issue. Uh, the design of a new project sits in the hands of those managing the existing project. You know, these are people who already have a lot on their plates. They are um, stretched across doing diplomatic duties and development duties and then on top of that they have to manage large sums of taxpayer money and also think about how you would redesign that project for, for the future. I think you need a centralised design team, one centralised in Canberra, one that works not just in PNG but across the Pacific aid uh, suite of Pacific countries um, and working in close concert with those managing aid to, to then design the, the future um, iterations of these projects. And yeah, like the breadth of these projects is just far too great for, for the sums that Australia is investing in them. Um, you know, a lot of people complain about the sectors Australia is engaged in, that we're engaged in too many sectors, but it's really challenging in PNG to reduce the scope of the, the sectors, uh, you know, education, health, governance, transport, uh, you know, pick any law and justice, pick anything that we're, we're working in. We are the, the dominant uh, partner with a primary partner in that space and so if you pull back from one sector you are leaving a huge vacuum that I don't think I was going to fill so if you can't reduce your focus your sectoral focus you need to reduce your what you're targeting or trying to achieve in each sector you know on aid partners there's a lot you can talk about uh, contractors and their role um, they're a favorite punching bag for a lot of people but um, you know I think the contractors need to be given they can can are an, an important 
development partner and will always be. And they can be very effective if they're given very specific tasks, very specific mandate, and then not micromanaged and left alone to, to implement what is their contractual responsibility. Um, the, the challenge is if you give them very ambiguous or ambivalent tasks, you give them no agency to actually be flexible, and then you micromanage them every day, that's a, a recipe for, for, um, for failure. I think grants is another issue that um, the Australian aid programs could could improve on. But and then there's also a whole lot you could talk about the role um, of advisors. Technical advisors make up a huge component of Australian aid investment in PNG, particularly in the governance space. The average advisor costs around five hundred thousand Australian dollars when you factor in security, overhead, accommodation. That's a huge huge cost. Um, and you know the reality is. Even then, they're underpaid. It's hard to get good people on the pay scale that Australia offers to actually go and um, be uh, heads of their fields in PNG. So yeah, we need to have a closer look at the role of advisors and the trade-offs of advisors against other investments. And finally, there's a lot more you could talk about aid management through from monitoring and evaluation through to the accountability of aids in terms of how you know it, within within DFAT. Who is, who is the ultimate responsibility, who has the ultimate responsibility for aid in post, in Canberra? Uh, how are they held accountable for that in, inside and outside of the department? How improving the transparency of Australian aid is of course something close to our heart with the, with, since we've spent so much time working on the aid map. And then, uh, you know, finally on just relationship management, everyone says relationships are key, particularly in countries as vulnerable as Papua New Guinea, but no one's reconciled how you maintain relationships with the very high turnover in contractors and within DFAT itself um, in, in the PNG environment. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it makes it even more challenging when there's no investment in any handovers, uh, either in the contractor or DFAT um, side of things. Uh, that might be a good place to start. So there's a lot of areas you could you could dive into. I'm sorry if I've kind of scattergunned across it, but um, you know this is a fourth. There is a forthcoming policy brief coming out looking at this. Uh, it's been put on the shelf a bit because of COVID this year, just as we're we're focused on on how that's affecting the region. But it will be coming out in the next few months, and I hope it does make a constructive contribution. That's what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be overly critical, but there is a lot of um, I guess meat on the bone of how. Uh, Australia's aid program and PNG can be improved. I don't want to add too much to what Jonathan said. I think he just just to support the fact that I think because it's such a difficult environment which we've been in for so long, he's right to focus on the nuts and bolts of how aid and aid delivery and management uh, is being done, rather than to try and come up with some grand theory or solution because this probably isn't one. Jono, you made a lot of recommendations there on changes that need to be made. The observation I'd have is that a lot of those changes need to come from the Australian side, which begs the question of how much Papua New Guineans are getting to drive their own agenda. That's a criticism of the new Partnerships for Recovery strategy is that a lot of changes have been made to aid portfolios throughout the Pacific, and it's not clear how much Pacific Island governments actually got to drive that agenda, or if those were decisions made in Canberra. My question then is whether there is a risk of being too inwardly focused and not focused enough on what recipient governments want from Australia. Yeah, look, that's a hard one for me to answer. I think, I mean, uh, of course, the starting principle should be need to have as much engagement and consultation with the with your stakeholders and counterparts as possible. Um, Recipient-driven development is, of course, the 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 um, best practice. But 
Um, so, but I mean, the, how how well ZFAT is doing on that front, I think you really have to talk to the recipients themselves. Um, I know that they do make a, a real conscious effort to try and in, in, engage uh, their counterparts in, in the PNG system as much as possible. Um, but, you know, the complexity of like what Australia is trying to achieve uh, and, but then the, the you know, Australia has never been the aid has never been less relevant to PNG's development than it is today. So it's becoming less and less important, but it's becoming more and more complex. And so it's difficult to get the buy-in from your PNG counterparts uh, all through the system when you get into such minutia as um, DFAT is, is focused in. So yeah, I, I, I do think you can, there is a, more to be done in getting a buy-in from from your counterparts and and your know, alignment with recipient government priorities is of course critical and they do do that through annual bilateral meetings and um and you know there is this the foreign the foreign ministers meet every year and there i mean there is a lot of dialogue but at the end of the day also i think it's you can't fully hand this over to to the to papua new guinea because this is australian taxpayer money we we do have to it does have to be held accountable and aid is not Australian aid to PNG is not being given ex exclusively for development purposes. You know there are critical national interest elements at play here, which we shouldn't be shying away from. Because um, you know I know it's uncomfortable for development practitioners to talk about, but the reality is aid always has and always will have a national interest lens attached to it. And so you will you do expect that some of these programming decisions will have to be made in Canberra, and always will be. And um, yeah. Anyway, I don't. So it's a balance between the two, and maybe we don't have the balance right. But um, yeah, the the you talk about this COVID response um, strategy. Well, I think that was done so quickly that it's just very hard to get such buy-in from from a range of stakeholders when you need to act quickly. It's interesting that you make the comment there that aid has never been less relevant to Papua New Guinea as it is now at a time when the phrase failed state continues to get thrown around with PNG. There's a lot that would say PNG has never been in a worse position and yet you say the relevance of aid is declining. Yeah, I mean, look, just look at the stats that um, aid to PNG uh, in inflation-adjusted terms is at almost at an all-time low. Aid as a proportion of GDP at independence almost was aid made up a quarter of GDP to PNG. Now it's down to under, uh, it's like 3% now, I think. So, you know, it, just the numbers alone will show you just how, how it's still relevant. It's still, it's still equivalent to about 10% of government expenditure, but it is not going to be the determinant of, uh, of PNG's development, it's not. It's not going to be the silver bullet. It can definitely, and it can. It can definitely help. It's definitely important. I'm not trying to. Um, anyway, I'm just trying to be realistic. Uh, in terms of fail, this failed state question. I mean, you know, tell me what a failed state looks like. Tell me what a successful state looks like. I think these um, these brandings on on Papua New Guinea, which is um, such a young, as we said earlier, such a young nation, um, such a quickly changing nation. Um, there is so much. There is such tectonic shifts happening about the way governance is done in PNG at the district, uh, provincial and national level that we are just not fully conscious of. Um, you know, it, it just, it's, it's really, it's impossible to categorize it in, um, into these, these categories, in my opinion. I think um, the, the met, yeah, the, a lot of numbers do show PNG in decline and 
that is a big, big worry. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of that is a reflection of just major headwinds that PNG is facing, huge population growth, huge natural resource dependence, a patronage system that is so entrenched in the political system that is, is going to be very difficult to, to get out of. There is no quick fix to any of this because like something has to have been broken to be able to be fixed. I think PNG was never, there was never a perfect PNG in the past. It's still evolving and we're just going to have to, you know, we're, we're on this journey with, with PNG. It's going to be a long one, a very long one. And it's, you know, we, we need to be more recognized that the challenges PNG faces are multi-generational and we need to be there as the, the you know, we want to be the partner of choice. We are, we claim that, so we claim to be that. And we need to recognize that we're going to be on this journey with PNG for a very, very long time. Okay. That's a good segue into the new aid policy, the Partnerships for Recovery Strategy. Roland, we'll start with you. Are you positive about the influence that this policy could have? Right. So this is the new Partnership for Recovery policy. I mean, obviously, this is all about the response to, to COVID-19 in large part, or at least it's happening uh, in that context. Look, I mean, there, there are a lot of good things that are in the policy and also in terms of what the Australian government and DFAT have been trying to do and are doing. Um, you know, the transport corridor, for moving critical supplies, that's, that's, that's a really important thing. Um, the shifting towards budget support and ensuring the provision of, of critical services, that's really um, appropriate in the current circumstances. And then, you know, there's statements of intent in terms of cons- the considerations of the, the travel bubble, which obviously could be uh, very important for the tourism economy in the Pacific um, and consideration of, 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 of looking at non-grant financing options. So there's, there's good things in in the in the new policy, I think the problem is simply that they just don't match the scale of the crisis uh, that is, is actually at hand, um, and and that's not just about the Pacific, of course. I mean, the the whole policy it's 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 a global policy, and but it's also focused on the so-called Indo-Pacific, which seems to basically mean Southeast Asia more or less, plus the Pacific, but most of the emphasis on um, the Pacific. And the scale of that crisis is is really big. Obviously, um, it's it's there's a health element to it. And the Pacific's been able to dodge the bullet largely on that front, but then it's probably getting hit harder on the economic side than the, than the rest of the world. Um, and then you've got in Southeast Asia, of course, the fact that these countries are, are actually very big, so it's quite difficult to make a meaningful difference. So ultimately, if you're going to match the scale of the crisis, then ultimately what you need is more dollars, right? The thing that's keeping the Australian economy afloat is a massive expansion in in the budget, right? Fiscal expansion, fiscal support to the economy. Developing countries in our region, that's what they also in principle need to be able to do as well. Now, if there isn't more dollars being put forward, which basically seems to be the case, the aid budget is is not going to expand, um, then what is needed is some out-of-the-box thinking on how are you going to actually meet this immediate need for short-term financing over, or basically now, but also probably over the next couple of years, how are you going to do that within what is otherwise a a fixed budget constraint? Um, That does point you towards looking at what these non-grant financing approaches could be. You know, to put a little criticism there, though, of course, DFAT has been sitting on a a review of alternative non-grant financing Approaches for quite some time, and we haven't really seen any significant news or, or changes in terms of 
of how they're going to deploy that. Um, you know, we'll probably get to later what more could be done, but I think that's exactly where a lot more could be done. It requires a little bit of out-of-box, more creative thinking, but it is, I think though, that's where the opportunity is to try and get towards actually matching uh, the scale of the crisis. So it's a decent policy to me, but it falls short in, in matching this crisis. Yeah, look, I agree with with Roland. I mean, it's a it's a fine policy, and um, you know, it seems to have brought in some of the elements of this broader development review that was um, rightly shelved as coronavirus was was um, breaking out. Um, but yeah, the the biggest flaw, as Roland says, for this of this policy is that it it doesn't reconcile with the fact that we have larger ambitions than we have ability the means to achieve. You know, we we had. Um, we're still behaving or our policies still behave like we have a much larger aid program than we do. You know, the reality is we have a shrinking aid program. Uh, we, it's fixed at $4 billion. We don't have a C, it's not CPI index for the next few years. So that means in effect, you having to, to cut, you all look at 5% savings every year because if all the projects you currently have invested in have a CPI increase, anything you want to do uh, attached to them. So, you know, they're growing, they're becoming more expensive. You have a fixed budget. Uh, you have to, so the, the, the aid budget is treading a lot of water here and they're having to make really tough decisions across the board about what to keep, what to cut, particularly as you, they're trying to hive out as much as possible to provide budget support and reprioritize towards health. Um, you know, I, I don't think the aid pro this this policy reconciles with reducing Australia's ambition because uh, that's what we're going to have to do. If we don't increase the aid pro budget, if we don't look at alternative mechanisms or doing greater bilateral lending, then we have to rapidly reduce our ambition and the region and the, our regional focus. I mean, yeah, Roland already talked about the Indo-Pacific versus Southeast Asia and Pacific uh, for our aid program, but it's 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 also about picking winners in the multilateral system. Who are we supporting? Who are we not? You know, we can't. We can't just maintain our funding to everyone. We're going to have to cut back. Yeah, it, it, I don't think this this policy does a good job of reconciling that. And because it's an uncomfortable narrative, we're a wealthy country. We're responding well to COVID. We have the means, but we are just um, like the, the 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 resolve from our political leaders and it just isn't there to, to be doing more in this space. To finish, we know that in 2005, the Howard government announced an additional $1 billion following the Indonesian tsunami, in addition to the funds already allocated to the region for the purpose of supporting tsunami recovery. The magnitude of COVID-19 is greater, and yet no additional funds have been allocated. What has changed in the last 15 years? Is it just a different economic climate? Is it a failure on the part of the aid sector to advocate for itself, or is it something else? Oh, well, maybe I'll offer a few thoughts first. I mean, you know, I think one one argument is definitely that the the context has has changed in 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 many ways and in, in, in a few different in a few different ways. I mean, of course, there was um, the GFC back in 08, 09, um, and I see that in many ways as the beginning of the decline of of aid. Now, Australia, of course, again, you know, we are the lucky country, right? We got through that one pretty well as well, but there were some pressures and that then um, began a period of, of an emphasis on budget consolidation and pressure on the aid budget. And of course, in the rest of the world, there was, in, in the rest of the advanced world, there was austerity as well, right? So I think that's one direction. The budget pressures really started to mount a little over a, a decade ago. Um, the other factor is of course, that for some of these countries, even if they're remaining quite poor, particularly in Asia, they are getting quite big. 
And so I think naturally people have started to ask questions. I think those questions are actually largely misplaced, but it's, that's, I think, what's occurred. Um, the third factor, of course, is, is, is geopolitics, right? And in a sense, you might, I would have actually have said that's an argument for um, increasing aid, but I think what it's come to is a situation where, you know, countries, rich countries in particular, are much more looking at what are they getting out of doing these sorts of things. And the aid industry sort of sits awkwardly within this as well, because although I do believe um, quite traditional forms of aid are very strongly in the national interests, that's not how the aid industry tends to operate. That's not how the aid industry tends to talk. Um, it's all about development um, for development's sake. I think there's a lot of overlap and synergy with pursuing the national interest, um, and it doesn't require that much to reconcile that. And now, of course, we have COVID-19 where governments are spending huge amounts in advanced uh, rich countries in order to keep their own economies afloat. Um, and, the, and the rationale is that the cost of doing so, the cost of borrowing for governments, the long-term costs of borrowing are extremely low. For Australia, it's about 1%. Um, and then if you add inflation, it's, it's negative right, to borrow over the long term. So that's, for most economists, that's very much justified a huge increase in spending in order to keep the economy afloat. And the returns of doing so are good too, because stimul the stimulus will pay off by avoiding worser outcomes. I think that exact same logic actually applies to what we should be doing on aid. The costs of financing, the provision of that aid is extremely low. And the returns to um, having provided that aid, especially compared to what you might think of as the counterfactual, which is economic depressions and you know maybe a lost decade in many developing countries, the returns to having provided the aid and avoiding those, those outcomes is also extremely high. So I think there actually is a very strong policy rationale for doing more on the aid front, but obviously the politics are not particularly conducive. So just, I think I agree with everything Roland said. I mean, yeah, one, I think the biggest, the sharpest contrast of the tsunami and now is that the COVID is affecting us all. There is this huge domestic stimulus um, that is being played out in Australia. So it's like, it's going to be a harder uh, na narrative to, for um, the government to sell, to be sending more abroad. But I mean, you know, we have a, um, a marketing prime minister. I think if he put his mind to it, he could he could sell it. Uh, but I think I'm, I'm I guess a bit more critical of the aid industry than than Roland may have been appreciate talking about the broader context. In that, I think there has been a failing failure of the aid industry in ab advocating for itself. The the advocate advocacy that has been done by the aid industry, such as it, as it is, has been uh, misplaced. It's been largely focused on public, on the public, on building public support and public sentiment for the aid program. And you know that that in the past did have we did have a groundswell of that leading to the 2007 election uh, with Kevin 07 and the Make Poverty History campaign and all of that. But um, you know the reality is that people don't vote on aid. They never like the at least not in any great numbers to affect outcomes at elections. So it's not an election. Uh, election issues, so it shouldn't be an issue for the public. It's also such an insignificant amount of public expenditure that you not you don't have a deep uh, public constituency in support of aid. Um, it's really a fringe issue where the but the but so much focus is put on the public at the expense of the the politics. You know that that I think the focus should had, should have been and should now be on building a political constituency for the aid program. And far too little has been done in that space uh, and is still not being done to, to that end. And what is being done by the likes of Save the Children, 
um, in these parliamentary study campaigns where they take parliamentarians to look at development projects firsthand. That's been supported by the Gates Foundation. You know, that's not even the aid industry in Australia doing taking the initiative. That's been supported by outside actors. Uh, there needs to be, you know, if what what Australia what the aid industry really needs is an effective lobbying group to be pounding the pavements of Parliament, to be uh, playing the political game, to be right in the middle of selling the national interest uh, and you know and getting buy-in from political from politicians because it is in our natural national interest and you, you see how effectively the defense industry has done this right i mean the defense has hit this two percent gdp target uh it is i think now 11 times larger than the a program it's the largest disparity in our history um and you know you think that's because uh you know they're out there selling the message to the public no, it's because they have a very effective lobbying industry, uh, but also, and also, you know, they're, they're, I'm sure they have very good justifications for the national interests uh, on defence as well. But anyway, I think and the, the, the key point being that the, the focus of advocacy has been misplaced and needs to be realigned. And the industry, the private sector NGOs need to be investing their own money in this space as well. Um, they can't just rely on the Gates Foundation to be doing advocacy on their behalf. We'll stop there. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jonathan Pryke and Roland Raja from the Lowy Institute on Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next week.